Jag vet inte hur många sällskaper jag har mött som sliter med att få in professionella investorer till trots för att produkten egentligen är ganska bra och sällskapet visar växt och goda tal. Vi ser en ting de proffsiga investorerna på utsikter i tillägg att du bygger ett bra sällskap självklart är hur du hanterar dina aktionärer eller ditt så kallade cap table som det heter på startupsk. Ett ödelagt cap table sätter rätt och slett en stopper för sällskapsutveckling. Unlisted.ai gör det möjligt för sällskaper att hantera aktie- och optionsprogrammer, aktieägarboken, cap table och det mesta av rättigheter in mot aktierna i sällskapet på ett sted. Pröv Unlisted.ai sin gratisversion idag. Uh, I'm here with Eric Rees, uh, the author of The Startup Way and The Lean Startup. Eric, uh, you presented five main headlines from your book, The Startup Way. Yeah. And let's start with the first one, continuous innovation. Sure. So The, the Startup Way uh, picks up the argument where Lean Startup left off with the idea that innovation is not something that happens randomly or you know you get lucky that one time, but rather it's a process, a continuous process uh, that companies should pursue all the time. And that means both as a startup, to go through the build, measure, learn, feedback loop and try to iterate and grow. But it also means after you achieve product market fit, after you're uh, large enough to uh, to be successful, then to not just rest on your laurels and say, well, I had that one innovation, so I'm set for life, but rather to always be seeking new and better ways of, of doing business. So is that um, hard for organizations to be doing that? It's very challenging. And the reason is that most organizations are set up primarily to exploit an innovation that they had in the past. And so much of our public markets culture is about uh, quarterly reports and quarterly returns. But the the present success that any organization has is based on good decisions it made years ago. Everyone is working not on this quarter, but on quarters years from now. And having a recognition that that's true allows us to make investments for the long term and really adopt a long term philosophy. Yet our organizational structures, the way that we promote, the way that we hold people accountable, the way that we allocate funding, uh, tend not to be aligned with that point of view. And that creates a conflict between, you know, the CEO or the founder or the board's desire for long term viability and uh, the much more immediately gratifiable uh, need for short term predictability. And when the short term wins out over the long term, then uh, that's when this can get very difficult. But uh, the entire, you know, our, our entire system um, with the with the shareholders mm -hmm. is actually it's it's promoting short term, short termism, if you can call it that. That's right. So how to break out of that and become innovative? Well, so my answer, you know, in my my life's work is about trying to do something about that problem. One answer is to improve our management practice and to adopt ideas like the startup way into our management culture. And another thing that I work on is called the long-term stock exchange or LTSE, where we're attempting to reform the social contract of capital markets uh, to hold companies and investors accountable to thinking in a more long-term way, both uh, I think are essential to seeing this problem solved because the status quo set up both the conventional ideas about management and also the accountability and policy environment that companies live in. It's self-defeating. The total number of public companies in the U.S. has been cut in half over the past 20 years. Uh, it's in total decline. The number of IPOs is down. Companies are waiting longer and longer to go public and trying to avoid it by whatever means possible. We've seen a huge rise in private equity and corporate consolidation. And I think we haven't really taken seriously uh, as a society what happens if the ecosystem of our public markets is so hostile to innovation that companies don't want to be there 
you know, how do we solve all the secondary problems that that causes, not least of which is uh, the general public gets locked out of the opportunity to invest in the growth that companies would have created in, pub- in the public markets in previous generations. So, yeah, th- I think this is a very severe problem that needs solving. So uh, you also talk about uh, at, uh, <clears throat> at, um, the startup being uh, the atomic of work. What, what do you mean by that? Sure. So if you follow my thesis that we need continuous innovation, that begs the question of who's going to do the innovating. And I call it the startup as an atomic unit of work, meaning we have to create internal startups. And we should just treat it like a tool in the corporate toolbox. Some problems in this world, startup is the right form to pursue it. So throw a startup at it. That's uh, that's no big deal. And once you make that a corporate capability, then it gets easier and easier to run more and more diverse experiments. Yeah, but when you let's let's say you throw a startup at it, and um, uh, <clears throat> let's say this startup gets traction, as it actually probably won't in 90 out of 100 times. Sure. Uh, how is the organization, uh, how will it manage to actually uh, make this a valuable asset in the company for years to come? That's a great question. And if you imagine, uh, the example I always use is, imagine you were a municipal taxi company and you had an innovation lab and your innovation lab accidentally invented Uber. Uh, on the one hand, this is supposed to be good news because your tiny, insignificant, economically insignificant company just created a 60, what is it, 40, now down to 40 billion, but like a tens of billions of dollar asset. So that's a great economic opportunity. And yet, practically speaking, if you actually imagine the politics of an innovation lab of a municipal, would you actually have been able to pursue the Uber opportunity? Of course not. The politics would have killed it. But that's so illogical. If you're a for-profit company, shouldn't you be really excited about the possibility of creating billions of dollars of value, right? So something's really backwards in the way that we uh, that we pursue these things. And it's exactly what you asked about, which is how do you manage the problem of success? Uh, in the book, the next principle that I talk about is what I call the missing function of the corporate org chart. The missing function is entrepreneurship as a corporate capability. Who is going to manage all these startups? Who's going to make sure that we have a career path for the people that lead them? And more, most importantly, who's going to define what in lean manufacturing we would call the standard work? Like, who's got the playbook for what do we do if, God forbid, we invent the next Uber, you know, or the next Facebook or the next who knows what innovation, right? So uh, if something is a true innovation and it works, there's really three success possibilities. Maybe the right answer is to spin it out as a wholly owned subsidiary or some kind of joint venture and get it out of headquarters, make it independent. Maybe the right answer is to reintegrate it into the parent company and make it part of an existing product line or P&L. Or maybe the new thing actually should become a new division of the company, right? Divisions of the company are not, they weren't carved by Moses on stone tablets. We can make a new one if we want to, not just through reorgs, but because we truly invented something new. The curse of entrepreneurship is there's no way to know at the seed stage which of those three outcomes is most likely or most appropriate. You have to run the experiment and get to a sufficient scale so that you can make an intelligent decision. And that begs the question, who the heck should be in charge of making that decision. It should be the leader of the entrepreneurial function of the corporation. So is that any different from um, the chief innovation officer that a lot of companies have today? It's very different because in most companies that have a chief innovation officer, although not in all, but in most, the chief innovation officer has no, uh, absolutely no operating responsibilities. 
they're just supposed to think futuristic thoughts or be a provocateur or a futurist. And I think that's ridiculous. So the entrepreneurial function, and in the book I try to make this idea more rigorous than we can just do in this few minutes of conversation, is both a very specific set of responsibilities for overseeing internal startups, and also it's a first-class corporate function, which means it has a seat at the table in negotiating the company's policies and procedures as a peer of the other corporate functions like finance, HR, IT, supply chain, you know, product, engineering, marketing, you name it. And therefore, it has real responsibilities that it can be held accountable to. Uh, it can be the place in the organization where we, where we think in portfolio terms right, rather than just in linear project plan terms. Uh, those portfolios can have metrics of accountability, uh, similar to how an LP would hold the GPs of a venture firm accountable. Uh, and like I said before, it can also be the place where we do cross-training and career path uh, and, and kind of human resource development on behalf of the entrepreneurial thinker, thinkers of the organization. All of those responsibilities have real operating impacts and therefore have real um, uh, accountability targets you could assign to them. So if you see um, a job ad for a chief innovation officer, you wouldn't necessarily be first in line to apply for that job. The first question I would have to the CEO is what are my operating responsibilities? And if there aren't any, it's probably a sweet gig, actually. Like you just think, walk around and think great thoughts, but that's not, that's not the way to have impact in my opinion. Oh. So um, yeah, you talked about also the, the the second founding when you actually have need to make these changes mm -hmm. when you when you when you validate probably validate yeah. um, uh, an, an idea uh, it gets traction and it needs to make these uh, changes in the organization uh, and that will that is probably a very critical point yes because then the managers or the executives really need to. To, to evaluate what to do. Unfortunately. So could you explain a little bit? Yeah. That? So if you follow the argument so far, each principle is kind of creates a problem that the next principle is designed to solve. So if we're going to do continuous innovation, who the heck in our organization is going to do the continuous? Well, it's going to be internal startups. But oh my God, if I have internal startups running around in my company, who's going to manage them? Oh, we need a corporate function that can manage the internal startups who can do the continuous innovation. But adding a corporate function is no small thing. It's fundamentally re-architecting the organizational structure of the company. I really think it's like founding the company all over again. And it's akin, doing a corporate transformation is very similar to like that moment in a startup's hyper-growth trajectory when, you know, you got to bring in Sheryl Sandberg and you got to bring operational rigor to the more uh, dynamic and experimental phase of the company's life. And I think that moment in a company's life should be celebrated just as much as the original founding. It's just as important. And that's true in a corporate transformation situation. Well, corporate transformation is hard, not least of which for the reason you already mentioned, which is uh, senior executives have to change their own behavior. So I think, excuse me, I think we have to get serious about studying how to transform in this very particular way because the kind of entrepreneurial management transformation that we're talking about is different than a 20th century reorg. It has much more entrepreneurial dynamics to it. It feels much more like running a startup because it has this long, slow, flat hockey stick of what we call the critical mass phase of the transformation followed by a very rapid scaling up when the moment comes for the company to say, let's reorganize around these principles, followed by a whole raft of deeply systemic changes. We call it changing the deep systems of the company uh, in the book. That's kind of a third phase. And it very much mirrors the three classic stages of an S-curve of startup growth. So 
in order to do that, we have to really see the people who drive the transformation as founders of a startup themselves. So, but shouldn't this uh, second founding come at, like, shouldn't this be the first step <laughs> of the organization? Everyone thinks that. Everyone thinks, well, why don't you just build the organization correctly in the first place? But it's not possible. And the reason is that there's no such thing as the one true organizational form. Every organizational form is context-specific. So uh, you only have the opportunity to do the second founding when you've had a certain level of success and built up a certain level of infrastructure. The steps that are required to build up that infrastructure necessarily cause the problems that this transformation is required to solve. That said, there are things you can do to plant the seeds of a healthy ecosystem earlier on. You know, it's almost like probiotics or something where you can't directly force the outcome, but you can, uh, you can have a healthy, uh, a healthy ecosystem. And those are things like the adoption of lean startup practices, like having a culture, a merit-based decision-making culture, a scientific and iterative decision-making culture. Those are ca corporate capabilities that will make the transformation easier if you have them in place. So yes, I think there are things you can do, but you can't just will this full structure into existence. It's too heavyweight uh, for the early stages of a company's life. Yeah. So, uh, and at the end, you talk about uh, the continuous transformation. Mm -hmm. That's where where the organization, uh, you know, uh, what do you call it? produces its produce the seeds of its, you know, of its own, <laughs> like it, 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 yeah, the seeds don't... of its own evolution. Yeah. And uh, but, and how how can you how would you explain that? Yeah. Well, I think it is ridiculous to think that we have all of a sudden right now, discovered the last management idea we ever were going to need. Like, come on. It's the 21st century, man. Like, things are going to be crazy and different. And, and you know, yes, Alfred Sloan's idea about how a corporation should be structured has had a pretty good 100-year run, but I don't think the successor idea will have a 100-year run. I think that new ideas are going to come fast and furious now, just as new technological capabilities come fast and furious. I mean, look, We already have a whole class of companies that are machine-human hybrids that don't have managers in a traditional sense. Uber. If you're an Uber driver, who's your boss? AI. Right. You you are. I mean, we already have tens of thousands of workers who work for an AI. And, like, if you have a complaint about how the AI works, can you see the AI supervisor? Like, no, there's human beings whose job is to write the AI, but they don't feel like they're your supervisor. And many of the HR protections that we take for granted with a human supervisor uh, have to be reinvented for this new crazy age. And if people think that's the end of it, have I got bad news for you? Because that is just the start. I would guess that within, uh, within 15 years, the majority of knowledge work will be, uh, organized via AI. So many of us are going to work for AI systems, not directly for human being, um, or at least for, for AI augmented human beings. Uh, maybe it's a more friendly way of saying it. So, so our management ideas are not up to this task. We got some significant thinking to do. So given that we know for sure that new ideas are going to need to be invented, what's our plan? You can't say, well, the plan is to invent all the new ideas in advance because We don't really exactly know what this new world is going to look like. So we have to be building systems that are highly flexible where we can experiment with new ideas to find the best one. So that should be true for new product ideas, but also for new management ideas. And to me, we have a real opportunity. Every organization on the planet has to go through a digital transformation right now. It's just a requirement. Every company that fails to do that transformation will be out of business. 
uh, in a few years. So since we're building a corporate capability for digital, agile, lean transformation, why on earth would we say, let's use this capability once and then throw it away? That's absurd. Instead, we should view this as a prerequisite corporate capability for survival in the 21st century. And each of us should be thinking about how can our organization constantly at all times be experimenting with new forms so that we can stay up to date with the crazy stuff that's coming our way. But are we really building a capability for digital transformation? Are you know are the organizations taking the steps necessarily to to, to do that? No, to most do? most organizations are not, but that's fine, they'll go out of business. But but why aren't they doing that? Well, if it's if it's live or die, right? It's so obvious. Uh, so I'll give you an example. I was at a company that I won't name the company, but I, I came in to do uh, some work for a company that uh, is involved with the um, uh, production and handling of physical mail. And we all know that physical mail is going away, obviously. And I was in the company's headquarters in the waiting room, and they had their annual report on the coffee table. I was the only leisure reading I had available. So I picked it up. I started reading it. The annual report says, we all know mail is going away and we plan to make this transformation. So it's a very obvious thing. Everyone knows it's happening. I go into the room to talk to the executives and I start off, well, since we all know that our whole business is going away, therefore, and people were like, hold on, hold on. How can you say such a thing? That's very rude to come in here and tell it. And I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. In addition to being obvious, I just thought it says it in your annual report. And they're like, who said that? And I'm like, I, I just read it. I, I, you know, I didn't write the annual report. It's your annual report. But, you know, they, it was like culturally, they were so wedded to the idea that everything was fine. You think about like, how it must have been like at Kodak or at RIM or you pick your favorite company that got disrupted. Uh, one of my favorite, favorite stories about Sheryl Sandberg was at an all hands meeting at Facebook. Somebody was challenging her about how come at the Facebook review system, uh, you get judged for success as a manager, as a as an individual contributor, based on the success of your project, not based on the success of your individual functional contribution to that product. Isn't that unfair? And she said, listen, it is unfair. But on the other hand, in the final years of Kodak, or pick your other favorite failed company, think of all the managers who got promoted because they were doing a good job, even though the company was failing. Do you really want to look back and say, I got promoted at Kodak? No, you don't. So yes, we're going to let them, you know, I have a whole philosophy about that. So yeah, I think it is, uh, it's uh, on the one level obvious, and yet most managers are simply not willing to do what is necessary to confront the reality that's staring them in the face. Um, yeah, it's it's frustrating. So what is an innovator to do in a company? An innovator? Uh, well, the good news is as a consumer, I don't care, right? So as a consumer, and I, when I'm, a, when I'm called into companies to be their consultant, I say, look, I, if you live or die, I don't really care. If you don't embrace these ideas, you're going to be replaced by a startup who will. And some some of my friends in San Jorot are going to make a lot of money doing it. So, uh, you know, as an innovator who works in a company like that, you really have to take the point of view that either the company is going to listen to you and make the change or you're wasting your time trying. And I think what most innovators don't do because they want to be political, they want to be friendly and they want to get, you know, make progress they tend not to speak truth to power. And I'm really a fan of saying, look, go to the CEO, lay out the stakes and say, I want to be held accountable for results. So can we have a conversation about what evidence would you have to see to double the budget of this innovation initiative each period? I'm not asking for the sun, moon and stars. I'm willing to start small. 
but I have a vision for how this company should work in the digital future. Uh, I would like permission to run this experiment. I want to do it in a very bold way, but also I want pre-agreement. If I deliver the goods, you double every time and hold me accountable. And very few innovators are really willing to go to their CEO and have that adult conversation. And those do, that are willing to do that are probably going to end up as entrepreneurs, right? <laughs> well, that's my feeling is what's the worst that can happen? You get fired, but at least you found out early and then go take your entrepreneurial talents and put them to work somebody for someone who does appreciate them or for yourself. Yeah. So one last question. Um, what, what, are, what is your advice? Because you, you keep talking about um, entrepreneurs, uh, you know, uh, leaving, leaving a, a bad business to start their own business yeah. because they don't one big, you know, work in a big business, yeah. but they're just, they have the same goal and that's to create a big business. Uh, yeah. so, but could, could they like organize their startup in a, in sort of, in a certain way, mm-hmm. like the startup way in you describe in your book. So they are actually also starting to produce new business models and new, mm-hmm. uh, future organizations. Uh, I'll tell you a secret. That's actually the reason I wrote the book. And that's the thing that I actually care about. I mean, I don't mind being a corporate consultant. And of course, I've had a lot of fun. It's been very intellectually interesting to work for these different companies. But being a corporate consultant does not get me out of bed in the morning. And it's not, you know, it is what it is. But it's not It's not the thing that I grew up being, oh, I hope one day I can be a corporate consultant. You know, it's not how I feel. No, no offense intended to my corporate colleagues. And there are some wonderful corporate consultants out there. I was not born to do that. This book and why it's important to me and the reason I wrote it and the reason I spent so much time thinking about these issues is actually I really think the next generation of companies and founders deserve an intellectual framework that can help them avoid these problems in the first place. And, you know, they can't they can't prevent all the problems from happening and you can't magically skip a step. You have to work through the steps. But I think understanding, just as with Lean Startup, having a conceptual vocabulary for concepts like the pivot, like minimum viable product, having an equivalent set of concepts for things like career equity, the incentive structure that individual employees face, like the entrepreneurial function, like continuous transformation. I think understanding the metaphor that says, hey, there are certain practices that we take for granted in the startup hubs in Silicon Valley that you don't want to abandon as you scale, meter funding, the way you treat internal startups, creating internal incubators and accelerators and support systems for your entrepreneurs like you had from your investors. Um, all of that conceptual vocabulary gives the next generation of companies a, a much greater chance of not becoming bureaucratic and lethargic as they grow. So at what time do you hire your first uh, entrepreneurial division manager in, in your startup? Well, every founder already is that person already. So the question is, when can you stop doing that job full time? And when do you have to do that osmosis thing of splitting the job out? It's no different than every other function. I mean, I'm a CEO. The job involves janitorial services and finance and HR and everything. And over time, you have to split out those responsibilities to new folks. So the uh, the supporting and empowering and teaching and mentoring of your internal entrepreneurs is your full-time job, along with 12 other full-time jobs. So whatever you can, you you shed load as best you can as you scale. So thank you so much, uh, Eric Ries. It was nice to have you on our podcast. Thank you. It's an honor to be here.